You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Thank you for having me tonight. I'm, I'm excited to be here. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Robbie Day. I'm the pastor at Grace Brethren Chapel in Piketon, Ohio, and I'm, I'm very thankful and honored to be here uh, tonight. I just I thank the world of, of Pastor David and, and everybody here that I know. I don't know all of you, um, but I'm very thankful for David in particular and for his, his love and the support he's shown me and the encouragement he's shown me over the past couple years as I've got to know him. And I just want to make sure that you guys know that he loves you dearly. I mean, more than I could probably ever explain for him, he loves you. And I'm thankful for that, that you have a pastor who loves you so much. So I'm excited to be here and to be a part of this, this, uh, this series on the doctrine of the souls. If you remember last year, I did Sola Scriptura, and I told you I get really geeked out over Reformation-type church history. Is, is, I absolutely love it, so I'm excited to be a part of this. Uh, and I also want to thank David, because I texted him the other night. I said, I have a really self-inflated prima donna request. And he's like, what is it, man? I said, please, give me a mic stand. So last time I was holding this microphone, I never, I always have a mic, so I, I use my hands a lot, but that hand was here, and I felt like the other one, like, kind of was obligated to be up there, and I felt like Ricky Bobby or something, like, I don't know what to do with my hands, like, so please give me a mic, so he obliged, and I'm very thankful, and then I found out Gary Chafin's asked for it also, so I didn't feel so bad then, but, no, I'm thankful to be here, my wife Mandy is here with me, my kids, Maddie and Matthew and Annabelle are downstairs, we're all excited to be here, I'm grateful that, that you've had me this, this afternoon, or this evening. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 today, if you'd like to turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to be reading the first seven verses. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, God's word says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our high and heavenly Father, we have thanks tonight for the word that you've given us, that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us so that we may understand who you are and who we are in light of who you are, so that we may know that we are sinners in need of grace and redemption, and that you revealed to us that you provided that for us in the person and the work of your Son. We ask now that you prepare our hearts and minds to receive the word as it's proclaimed this, this evening. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, I'm very happy to be here tonight. And again, I'm thankful for this congregation. I'm thankful for the ministry of revolution. And, and, and I'm thankful, as I mentioned, um, for Pastor David 
Uh, but specifically, I'm thankful for him and the leadership of this church for their commitment to preaching sound biblical doctrine. Uh, specifically the Reformation doctrines, which I know you've started looking at last week with Sola Scriptura. Uh, but what we really need to understand is that these aren't really necessarily just Reformation doctrines, but these are biblical doctrines. These are the truths that we find in Scripture. And so in an age of, of relativism, where truth's not only challenged, uh, but the ability to even know truth is questioned, many Christians have, have taken the exact opposite approach when it comes to doctrine by deeming it either unnecessary or, or unimportant. However, that couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, this is precisely what we need in an age, in an age of doubt and skepticism. Because doctrine is simply put, the articulation of truth. Doctrine demonstrates and informs our knowledge and our understanding of the truth. And that's precisely what the scriptures tell us we need in a world that doubts truth. Peter wrote this in 2 Peter. He said, take care that you are not carried away from the error of lawless people and, and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Or even further, Paul wrote to Titus in Titus 1. He said, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. And so these are just a couple of the, the many examples throughout the scriptures, scriptures of the biblical imperatives that command us to both cling to sound and pure doctrine and repudiate and oppose false doctrine. And because this wouldn't be a, a true five solo sermons if I didn't include at least one or two quotes from one of the reformers, John Calvin reiterated the importance of, of sound doctrine for the church when he wrote this. He said, the flock of Christ cannot be fed except with pure doctrine, which is alone our spiritual food. And so, of course, by pure doctrine, he means biblical doctrine, biblical truth quantified in doctrine. And so, in short, sound biblical doctrine is vital to the health of the Christian church. And so today, of course, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of sola gratia, or by grace alone, and I'm, like I said, I'm very honored and, and excited to preach this beautiful doctrine and to do so from not only my favorite passage in all of scriptures, but my favorite verse and my favorite word in all of scripture. This was actually the passage that I, I preached from when we planted our church. The very first sermon that I preached at Grace Brethren Chapel seven years ago was from Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10, because I believe that this passage that Paul wrote to the Ephesians captures the essence. There are many passages that, that show us and reveal the truth of God's of salvation by God's grace alone, but I feel that this passage captures the essence of this doctrine better than any other passage in the Bible. So what I'm going to do is, is, at our church, I always have a truth taught, something for you to take away. If there's one thing you remember when you leave tonight, it's this, and so I'm going to read it to you. Tonight's truth taught is this, salvation from spiritual death comes only by the grace of God. Salvation from spiritual death comes only by the grace of God. And that's to say that our salvation, our, our redemption, our forgiveness from sin, our deliverance from God's wrath towards sin is, is not something that we obtain. It's not something that we achieve. And it's not something that we win. But rather, it is a free and unmerited gift that is afforded to us by the grace of God. And we see this, if you were to turn back to Ephesians 1 and you walk through Ephesians 1, you would see Paul articulate how God predestined us for adoption by the Father and, and that he redeemed us 
by the sufficient and atoning work of his son, and that he regenerated and sealed us by the power of his Holy Spirit. But the whole point in that whole chapter, as Paul's articulating the Trinitarian role or the action of the Trinity in our salvation, is that it was all accomplished by God. Nowhere in that entire chapter does he mention what we've done to accomplish or achieve our salvation. And he doesn't change as he continues here in Ephesians chapter 2, which is what we're looking at tonight. And this doctrine is a major point of contention. It was a major, major point of contention for the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church during the Protestant Reformation. The Roman Church had a very different view of salvation. However, it, it's not what most people usually think or say about the Roman Catholic Church. It's a common refrain to hear someone condemn the Roman Church by saying, well, they believe salvation is, is earned or merited through human works. However, that's not quite actually what they say. They, don't, they wouldn't say that, that grace is not necessary or that grace is not required in salvation, but rather what the Roman Catholic Church would teach is that it is a combination of both grace and works, as if God and man are co-pilots, as if they're working together to accomplish and achieve their salvation. However, what the Reformers realize is that by taking any credit for our salvation, that we are both denying what the scriptures say about the role of grace and salvation and denying God the glory due to him for accomplishing and gifting us with our salvation. And so that's why this became one of the primary sticking points in the Protestant Reformation. And so as we dive back into our text, I think we'll see one of the key reasons that this doctrine can become so distorted is because there is a large misunderstanding about the fallenness of humanity and the condition that we are in due to sin. So this first three verses here we're going to look at together, and I've, I've called this subsection or subtitle this totally depraved or totally fallen in sin. Because what we see when, when Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians, his purpose right from the start was to demonstrate the power of God to save the sinner from their depraved, sinful, fallen nature, their spiritual death, and from the impending wrath of God towards sin. However, in order to do that, he had to articulate what it meant for the sinner to be lost in sin. If he wanted the Ephesians, or, or any Christian for that matter, to understand grace, he had to explain and really drive home what it meant for one to be in sin. In other words, in, in order for anyone to rightly understand how we are saved by grace, we must first understand what we are being saved from. And so Paul, Paul spends these first few verses diagnosing, if you will, the human condition and articulating the human plight of being born into sin. He begins in verse 1. He says, and you, talking to the Ephesian Christians, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So prior to conversion, prior to salvation, before God imparted grace to you, you were spiritually dead and at odds with God. And he goes on. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And so while there's, there's much to unpack, the, the part of this passage that I really want us to key on here is, is found in verse 3, that we were by nature children of wrath. 
Paul's already said that, that prior to conversion, we were dead in our sin, that we were sons of disobedience. And now he comes to verse 3 and he says, we were by nature children of wrath. And the point that he's making is this. When Paul talks about our condition in sin prior to our conversion, he doesn't merely identify sin as an action performed, but rather he's referring to sin as a quality that's possessed by us, or, or rather as an identity that's possessed by us. When Paul explains that we were sons of disobedience, he's saying that we were born with an inclination to disobey God, that our condition at birth is this possession of a sinful nature and controls, that controls and directs our thoughts and desires and everything that we do. He says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. But not only that, he says that these passions and these desires are informed by the great deceiver himself, that we followed the prince of the power of the air and leading us directly into our destruction and our condemnation. However, the, the key component, again, of these first three verses is that in our depraved, in our fallen state of sin, we are spiritually dead. We are not only separated and at odds with God, but we are by nature. It is who we are. We are by nature set against him in all of his righteous ways. But not only that, the conditions, it gets worse because by saying that we're dead, Paul is emphatically illustrating here just how bad our sinful nature is and the fact that we have absolutely no ability in and of ourselves to change the nature of our heart because we're dead. I don't mean to be crass about this, but, but we know that a, a physically deceased person has absolutely no power to reverse their death and to give themselves Life. They don't have the power to raise themselves from the dead. And that's exactly what the Lord is telling us here through the pen of the Apostle Paul is that just as the physically dead have no power to reverse their death, nor do the spiritually dead have the power to reverse their spiritual death. That prior to conversion, we are dead in our trespasses and sins and by nature, children of wrath, having no ability to change our position before God as a condemned sinner. And to be honest, to this point, this is a very bleak and disheartening truth. To read just verses 1 to 3, that's, that's pretty sad. However, the good news is that Paul, to this point, was merely diagnosing the problem. The good news is that, that he goes on to also identify the remedy in what I believe is the greatest conjunction ever written in verse 4. And so as I mentioned, this is my personal favorite passage in all of Scripture. And verse 4 is my favorite verse in the Bible. But not only that, these first two words of verse 4 are my two favorite words in all of Scripture. Because after Paul has just laid out the dreadful situation that all of humanity and all of creation, for that matter, finds itself in because of our sinful disposition and because of our separation from God, after he draws this bleak and desperate picture that makes it seem as if there is absolutely no hope for us because we are inherently sinners who are by nature set against God and left to ourselves would certainly be completely without hope, after all of this... Paul follows with two short, simple, beautifully hope-filled words that contain within them the greatest promises and glorious goodness of God and his grace, jam-packed into this short, simple phrase, 
but God. But God. After all the talk of death and sin, after all the talk of wrath and condemnation, after identifying humanity as fallen and broken and unconcerned with the things of God, finally, a beam of light bursts through the darkness and proclaims that there is hope for the children of wrath. But God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath, but God. And this just this one tiny conjunction, Paul provides the glorious hope of the gospel. He's going on and on. You were dead. You're a trespasser. You're a sinner. You're a child of wrath. Unrelentingly, he continued to pour over the truth of our depravity, continuing to emphasize what it means for us to be in a state of rebellion against God. But all the while, he was doing so because he knew he was heading right for this word, this beautiful little word, but... Yes, you were spiritually dead and completely unable to breathe any kind of spiritual life. But, yes, you were a trespasser who had no concern for God's law and continued time and again to violate his righteous commands. But, yes, you were living and walking in sin, resisting and rebelling against God and following the prince of the power of the air in every step of every facet of of life, but, and yes, you were a nature, or by nature a sinner, born into that rebellious state, and without any ability to change your identity as a sinner, but there is hope, Paul says. But God, Yes, the the very God whom we sin against, the very God whom we're trespassing against, the very God whose laws we're violating and whom we're rebelling against, this is the God in whom we find our hope. When talking about our, our condition and sin in the first three verses, Paul was all about giving us all the credit. We're the sinners. He got that right. We get it. We're the sinner. We do all the sinning. But when it comes to our salvation... Paul makes it clear to us and makes sure that he makes absolutely no mention of anything that we do whatsoever to redeem ourselves and makes it clear to us, but God. That God and God alone is our only hope of salvation from death and condemnation. And so now we're starting to see Paul's thought a little more completely as we work through this passage. In those first three verses, Paul never introduced the main subject or the main verb of the thought he's trying to convey in this passage. He was building context. He was explaining the situation or the plight of humanity, but had yet to identify either the main subject or the main verb. But now, now we see the main subject of these first ten verses. We're only looking at seven tonight, but these ten verses. And we see that that subject is God. God is the actor in this passage. God is the mover in our salvation. And so in essence, Paul's primary thought could be more succinctly stated like this. Starting in verse 1 and then jumping to 4, you could simply shorten it to, you were dead in trespasses and sin, but God has acted to change your situation and your identity. And we'll see soon uh, what that action or that main verb is as we come to it in verse 5. But first, we have to ask this question, why? Why did God do this for us? 
If we're such horrible and wretched and terrible fallen sinners, children of wrath by nature, born into sin, why would God even bother to act on our behalf when we wanted nothing to do with him? And I think the inclination, the, the, the human inclination is to think, oh, I must have been really good. I must have done something to impress him. But Paul immediately throws that out the window for us and says, no, this is why. And he answers and continues in verse 4. He said, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with, with, with which he loved us. So when Paul says God saved us, and then gives us the because or the why, where does he mention anything that we do? He doesn't. He immediately turns our attention back toward God and who God is. God is rich in mercy, and God has great love. That's why he saved you. One of the things, again, that the book of Ephesians repeatedly points out is, is that our actions are always rooted in our identity in our character. They're a product of, of our nature. So when we're children of wrath, our actions are a product of our fallen nature. When we're a, children of God, a child of God and we're in Christ, our actions are rooted by our identity, our, from our, our identity in Christ. But the thing about this is God is no different. Not that he, he's a sinner, but God acts based on his character. His actions are rooted in who he is. He's not merciful and loving because he does merciful and loving things. He does them because he is, in his essence, merciful and loving. Just like us. We're not sinners because we've committed sins. We commit sins because we're sinners. That's, that was Paul's whole point. You're by nature a sinner, and so you sin. God's the same way. God does holy things because he is, in his essence, holy. God does merciful things because he is merciful. God does gracious things because he is gracious. And he always acts in a way that's consistent with his nature and his character. That's who he is. That's the simple answer Paul said. Why did God do this for us? Because that's who he is. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That by sending his son to die in our place and effectively taking our sins upon himself, God can pour out his wrath on Christ and he can maintain his holiness. He can maintain his justice. He was never inconsistent with who he was. And at the same time, by imputing Christ's righteousness to us and imputing our sins to him, he's demonstrating his mercy and his love and his grace toward us. And so the reason God provides salvation to an undeserving and an undesiring people is because of simply who he is. His mercy is rich. His love is great. And they are flowing from the unending depths of an eternal God whose goodness is unending. And these truths, they're continually reiterated and demonstrated time and again throughout the scriptures. He is a God of mercy who repeatedly forgave the sins of Israel. No matter how many times they turned their back, no matter how many times they disobeyed his law, he remained faithful to Israel. He's the same God who continually acted on their behalf and delivered them from their trials and their tribulations. And because he is the same God, yesterday, today, and forever, he is just as faithful to his children today. He is just as faithful because he has not changed. He still provides redemption because he's promised to provide redemption and he is faithful to his promise. He grants us grace 
because he is a gracious God and he has not changed. He still judges sin because he is holy and he is just. But he also pardons and saves sinners because he's merciful, because he's loving, because he's gracious. And this will, this will now turn our attention directly to the, the grace of God and our salvation and, and, and that our salvation can be accomplished only by an act of God. So this is the third portion of this text we're going to look at, verses 4 and 5 together now, where we see that salvation is by grace alone, meaning it's only by an act of God given to us by his free grace. And so we continue on, picking back up in verse 4 and on into verse 5. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which you loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So earlier we saw that, that God was the main subject in this thought, in this line of thought that Paul's articulating here in Ephesians chapter 2. Now we come to the main verb, or the primary action that God took on our behalf and more fully completing the truth that Paul is teaching. But not, not before reminding us one more time, as if he didn't already make the point well enough in the first three verses. He reminds us one more time of our previous identity. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God, and here's that primary verb, made us alive together with Christ. God made us alive in Christ. So that primary verb or that primary action that God took on our behalf is that he made us alive with Christ. And so his, his thought or his message now being conveyed is, is becoming more clear to us now as he has set the context and the identity of us, of who we were before knowing Christ. We've identified the subject of who will act to change that condition, and now we have the action that was taken to change that condition. And it would go something like this. You were dead in trespasses and sin, but God made us alive together with Christ. That is the essential message of Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in sin. You had no ability to change it, but God did have the ability, and he acted to do so. And the very important thing to see here is that the movement or the transformation of the sinner, the child of wrath being transformed from death to life was completed only by a unilateral act of God. This is why Jesus could say, I am the way and the truth and the life. Because as we've already pointed out, the dead did not have the power to give life. And so it's only by the immeasurable power of God that we have new life. And we have it in Christ because he's the source of our life. And he has imparted it to us in a monergistic act, meaning that the, all the energy and all the direction and all the power in our salvation came from one source, and it came from God and God alone through the person and the work of his son. It wasn't a synergistic co-op between us and God to make ourselves right before him, but rather it was God acting to bring us into a covenant with him. Paul continues to reiterate this, as he does throughout the epistle and all throughout the rest of the New Testament, that this new identity we have, we were once children of wrath, but now we are alive together, and here's our new identity, that our new identity we have, it is in Christ. 
and that this identity was accomplished. It was given to it. We have it because of what God, a sovereign God, did for us. He made us alive in Christ. By grace you have been saved. He'd go on in verse 6 to say that God also raised us up with him, meaning with Christ. That God also seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So God gave us new life with Christ. We were sinners. We deserved death. Christ had no sin and he was full of life. And God sent him to give us life. And not only that, he made us co-heirs with Christ. He made us brothers and sisters with Christ so that what Christ receives from the Father, we too will receive. But he did it all by a sovereign act of grace in which he accomplished everything. Nowhere in this passage or in this book or in the scriptures does anyone specifically here, I'll stick, I'll, I'll try not to get off, off, off my beaten path here, but nowhere does Paul say anything about what we did to contribute to our salvation. All three of these actions, that God raised us up with Christ, that he seated us with Christ to put us in the heavenly, and that he made us alive together with Christ, all of them were accomplished by God. They were only possible because of what Christ did for us while we were when or what still yet sinners Christ died for us he didn't wait for us to come to him he didn't wait for us to realize okay man my life's really messed up it's time I got to get cleaned up let me get myself ready to go let me me get all my skeletons out of my closet first and now I'm going to come to Jesus no he came to us while we were still yet sinners and Paul says when we were still yet sinners we were dead So the fact that we were brought out of that condemnation, we were brought out of that identity and sin when we were dead and could do nothing about it means that it only came by the sovereign work of God. And all this, Paul, I mean, we have to remember, Paul said was afforded to us in God's grace. That's why we're here tonight. We didn't deserve any of it. We didn't do anything to earn it. God graciously imparted it to us. I mean, let's make certain we don't lose sight of this, of of, of all the things we've talked about. Paul was intentional in not only identifying the action that God took to save us, but also the way in which he did so. He makes it clear at the end of verse 5, after explaining that God made us alive in Christ, which was the main verb of the passage, the primary action God took to deliver and redeem his people, he goes on to say he did so by grace. It was by grace you have been saved. I always find this a hard thing to to illustrate. Every time I try to come up with an illustration for for grace, I end up finding a problem with it. But one of the best illustrations, and I'm going to tell on myself here, and you'll probably laugh at me, but when I was in about 7th or 8th grade, I used to, I had a study hall, and like three days a week I'd go down and I'd help the the middle school PE teacher um, with the the younger kids. And her rule was if you're in the gym, you can't have any jewelry on, and being the mid-90s, I had a gold rope chain necklace that I wore every day, and um, so I took it off every day, and I laid it on the, on the, de- the table, and most days I forgot it and left it there, and she actually had my lunch duty after, and so she'd bring it down to me just about every day uh, that I forgot it. Well, one day, I left my, my necklace on her table, and um, she came to lunch duty, and I, I, I remembered it, and I, she came in, and it, it jogged my memory, and I said, oh, I forgot my necklace. I went up to get it, and she said, oh, I didn't grab it today. So I ran down to the gym to go get my necklace, and it was gone. Someone had already found it. Someone had already taken it, and it was lost. 
It was completely my fault. It was my necklace. I was responsible for the necklace. I was the one who should have went over and got it. I should have never been relying on her to bring it to me. It was completely my fault, but she felt so bad for me that I lost this gold necklace. Knew I was probably in trouble. My parents both are teachers and taught with her, so she probably knew they were going to be happy with me. Um, so she went out, and she actually she had contacted my mother and, and said, hey, what kind of music um, is Robbie listening to right now? I want to get something for him. To, I really feel bad about this. And my mom told her, well, I think he likes Ace of Bass. Yeah, that's fine. Go ahead, because I was expecting it worse. The, I, it was the 90s. So anyway, so she goes out and she buys, not only buys this album for me, CD, and uh, packages it, wraps it up for me. She writes a letter to me, pretending to be the lead singer from Ace of Bass, which I have no idea what her name was or what their name was, and because um, there were like four of them. I shouldn't be... Just get off of Ace of Base. But anyway, so she writes this letter to me pretending to be them and sends it to me in the mail. And I knew immediately when it came in because the letter said something like, we heard you really lost something valuable. We really feel bad for you. We wanted to, to, to give you this gift to, to make you feel better. Something along. I knew it was from her. But my point in all this was this. My point in telling the story was this. In this whole situation, she had absolutely no obligation whatsoever to go out and replace this item of value that I had lost. The entire responsibility of, of holding on to that, of that possession I had, was mine. I'm the one who didn't hold my end of the deal. I'm the one who wasn't responsible. But yet, out of a gift of grace, an act of grace, having no obligation to do so whatsoever, she took it upon herself to try to make me feel better. Now, this is what Paul's trying to tell us about what God does for us. I didn't do anything to obligate her to do that for me. I didn't do anything to help her do that for me. I didn't do anything to empower her to do that with me or for me. And I didn't do anything with her to do that for me. She did it all on her own because she desired to do so. And when it comes to our salvation, what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2, what the reformers were saying when they wrote Sola Gratia, what they're saying when it comes to our salvation is that God did it all on his own, out of the grace and the mercy that he possesses because of who he is. It's not us coming alongside him. It's not us preparing ourselves to be received by him, making ourselves lovely for him. No, God comes to us while we are lost in our sins, while we are children of wrath, and changes us, transforms us, and redeems us so that we can now walk in passive righteousness. We don't ever obligate God to act on our behalf. God acted to save us before we even realized we needed to be saved. He didn't wait on a change of heart. He didn't wait on us to attain the ability to do it because, simply put, we were still dead in sin. We were dead in our trespasses. But God, because of the richness of his mercy and the great love with which he had for us made us alive together with Christ by grace we have been saved and just so we get the point Paul he he says it again he repeats himself if we were to go on in, in verse 8 he goes on and it says again for by grace you have been saved through faith and you're going to talk about that next week when you look at sola fide and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God not a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. This is the essence of the Reformation doctrine of sola gratia, of grace alone. That God is the author and the finisher of our salvation. He initiates our salvation by calling us from before and adopting us from before the foundations of the world. By calling us through the proclamation of the gospel and regenerating our heart and then freeing us from the bondage of sin that prevented us from coming to him in the first place. And then enabling us to now fall at his feet in humility and repentance. Now this is not one of the more popular doctrines, especially in our area, just to be truthful and I don't say this to cast stones. I, I talked today. I said, is it okay if I talk about this? He said, absolutely. So if anybody gets mad, talk to Pastor Dave. Um, but anyway, I'm not, I'm not saying this to, to cast stones, but simply to identify and distinguish what we're saying, why this doctrine is so important. Because this is what separates us, because our church is also a Reformed Baptist church, just like you guys are. This is what separates us from, say, a free will Baptist church or many other denominations. I get asked, because I get asked all the time that question, what denomination are you? And we're, we're much like you guys. I don't, you, we don't have a denominational affiliation. But we very clearly identify ourselves as Reformed Baptists. We ascribe to the London Baptist Confession and other similar confessions. We are distinctively Baptists. We may not have an affiliation, but... We dunk people when we baptize them, right? We don't sprinkle them, but we dunk them. And we wait until they're able to profess their faith before we do it. That makes us distinctly Baptists. However, that's still a pretty big umbrella. There's, there are a lot of different kinds of Baptists, and one of the key distinctions made among Baptist doctrine is, is how we understand what's called the order salutis, the order of salvation, and what order do things take place in order for us to be saved. Does God act first or do we act first? And this is where we get much of this distinction. Again, Paul elaborates on this more in the next few verses, but for now I'll just briefly say this, that a free will Baptist, including many you know, missionary and old uh, united and old regular Baptists, would argue that in our fallen state, that we, the fallen sinner, have the ability to freely choose Christ while we are still in our sin and rebellion without any work on the part of God whatsoever. That we have the ability to, to, to come up out of this fallen, dead state and choose and walk to God. But this, again, is what distinguishes a Reformed Baptist from a Free Will Baptist. This is not what we would, what we would hold as Reformed. And what I mean by Reformed, again, is a, a Baptist church that holds to these Reformation doctrines that the Protestant Reformers identified during the Reformation. Not that they were newly formed doctrines, but simply put that they, that, they, or that they suddenly discovered them, but they were doctrines that the Roman Catholic Church had distorted and denied, and the Reformers were simply calling the church back to these fundamental biblical truths. And so as a Reformed Baptist, we hold that in our state of sin, we do not have the ability to freely choose God because we are in bondage to sin. It's chained us down. We're enslaved to it. And that's all biblical truth from the mouth of the, the pen of Paul. Again, sin is not just what we do. It's who we are. Now, this is not to deny our ability to make decisions. But it is to say that because of our depraved and fallen and sinful nature, we will simply never freely choose God because we don't have the ability to do so when we are dead in our sin. Paul, again, makes this crystal clear for us in Romans 
chapter 8, after distinguishing that those who are in sin are in the flesh from those who are in Christ or in the spirit, he's just outlined that there's a difference between the two. Those who are in sin are in the flesh, and those who are in the spirit are in Christ. And then after he says that, he, he, he comes to verses 7 and 8, and he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh, so the, the mind that is set on sin, it is hostile. It hates God. Whether we confess it or not, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot submit to the law of God. And then he reiterates again, and I think when Paul really wants to emphasize something, that's what he does. He says it twice in verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so what this means is, is that in sin, as children of wrath, we certainly have the ability to make decisions, but, but because of our, our sinful nature, in which we're enslaved and held in bondage to sin, we will only choose that which is sinful or fleshly and cannot choose to do anything in the way of pleasing God, including repent. And it isn't until God works in us. It's not until the transformation, the regeneration that the Spirit accomplishes in our heart, until that takes place that we are freed from that sin, that the chains, the bondage is removed, and now we'll not only get up and run to Christ because we want to, but there's nothing else that we'll ever do. It's not to say we won't ever make mistakes in sin, but now that the the chains have been removed, we know nothing but the glory and the grace of God, and that's all that we ever want. Let me back up here because I got a little little carried away. David told me not to get too excited. He said, yeah, he said, don't get a little too excited tonight, but I did. So let me back up and be clear here. He didn't really tell me that. Um, What I'm not saying is that when we come to Christ that we won't ever sin. What I'm saying is that when we're in chains and bondage, we can't run to God. We don't even know we need God. But when we're freed and nothing's holding us back and now we taste the goodness of Christ, as Paul says, we will want nothing else but to run to him. Even when we fall down, our desire will be to get back up and to run to Christ. This is what God has accomplished for us. This is what he did in our redemption, in our transformation, our regeneration. He freed us from sin and gave us the power to now choose him because he's already done his work within our heart. And he did so out of his grace. One more verse I want to look. I don't know how I'm doing on time. Am I doing all right? Keep going? Okay, I'll try to, I'll try to close up here. Verse 7, the, the fourth and Final subheading we're going to look at here. Now we're going to look at why God did this. The big picture, why he did this, which was for his glory. So this final portion of the text where Paul, again, tells us that the, that the purpose of God's work to save us was that, we would be glo- that he would be glorified. He made us alive in Christ and, and raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ. In verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. See, one of the things that we must understand is that the sooner we realize that God's work of salvation was not about our glory or our abilities, but about a proclaiming 
and showing his glory and his power, the sooner we realize that we have absolutely no one to praise for our salvation other than God. He saved us so that, Paul says, through his work of salvation and redemption, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace to the coming age. How arrogant is it for us to think that God saved us because of us? Paul tells us very clearly, God saved us so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Meaning this, as as believers in Christ, we are a walking, talking proclamation of the gospel. Every step that we take in Christ, we are an example of the power of God's grace towards sinners and serve as a witness to that power and grace. And this says a great deal about the importance of how we love and serve the Lord. Not that he needs us or that, he, that, 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 that his, the, the success of his plans and promises are dependent on us. But that as children we are called to holiness and Christ-like conformity so that we would make known the immeasurable riches of his grace. This is what Paul was saying in, in 1 Corinthians 3 when he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but... God gave the the growth. We're merely the laborers in the vineyard. If we are in Christ by the power of his spirit, we can plant the seeds of the gospel and we can cultivate the seeds. But the growth of the seed comes from something far beyond our reach and from a power far greater than our own. God is the one and the only one who gives the growth to those seeds. He is the only one who can cause that seed to achieve its purpose. But still yet we are called to labor. We are called to witness. We are called to be that walking, talking example of God's grace towards sinners. We're called to be a living testament to what God did for us in Christ. Like waves move across the ocean, our our gospel witness is like a, a ripple of water that echoes on and on and on and has continued effects but again what we have to understand is that the first cause in that movement of that wave was not us but rather it was God he tipped the first domino he made the first splash and all those ripples while we're following him it's because he's enabled and empowered us to do so by his grace and his grace alone let's pray Our gracious Father, God, we, we recognize and confess tonight that we are sinners in need of grace. Father, we recognize that we can do nothing in the way of saving ourselves. We can do nothing in the way of giving ourselves new life. We can do nothing in the way of redeeming ourselves from sin. Father, we confess that our salvation is by your free and your sovereign grace alone and that it was provided for us and the person and the work of your Son. God, let us take this truth to heart and let us fall before you in worship and in humility and let us always give you all the honor and all the glory and all the praise for a salvation that you alone accomplish by your grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.